0: Hallelujah, Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Hallelujah. Martin Luther once famously wrote that the Holy Spirit is no skeptic. He was in a debate at the time with a man who was very skeptical. Some of you may know his name. It was Erasmus. Others of you may have no clue who Erasmus is. It's not all that important. What matters is Luther's assertion that the Holy Spirit is no skeptic. Erasmus, at that time, was a very scholarly man. He was full of all kinds of learning, and if you've heard his name before, it's probably because you studied something about the Renaissance, right? Maybe back in your high school days or your college days, and Erasmus was important for the time that we call the Renaissance. He was important, and he was influential in many of the fields of his day, but he was very skeptical when it came to theology. You know the type of guy. We can't really know what the Bible means because, well, different people say it means different things. So we should remain a little bit aloof. We shouldn't insist too much that we know what's right because, well, in the end, who can really know, right? Who can really say? Erasmus was a skeptic. And many people in our day and age are maybe more skeptical than even he was. Many are skeptical about making assertions, but Luther, Luther says the Holy Spirit isn't one of those. The Holy Spirit is no skeptic. And Luther's point, right, Luther's point was, well, exactly what Jesus says in our gospel reading today. The Holy Spirit is no skeptic. No, the Holy Spirit delights in making assertions. It may be true that men twist what the Spirit-inspired words of Scripture say. It may be true that what the Spirit asserts has been distorted, has been fractured and fragmented. But that doesn't change that the Spirit loves to make assertions. And so over and against Erasmus' skepticism, which would reduce Christian faith to just your opinion or my opinion or his opinion or her opinion and who can really know in the end, over and against that skepticism, Luther insisted, and we insist with him, that the Holy Spirit is no skeptic. And here's the rest of what Luther said. What he, the Spirit, has written into our hearts are no doubts or opinions but assertions that are more certain and more firm than all human experience in life itself. That's a blast from the past, isn't it? That is very different than the prevailing spirit of our day and age. We live in a world that is full not of the spirit of assertion, the spirit of conviction, the spirit of truth, but we live in a world full of the spirit of indifference, right? Indifference. Full of the spirit of skepticism. Well, can we really know? The only assertion that our world wants to make is that there are no universal truth statements. Which, of course, is a universal truth statement. Are you sure that there's no universal truth statements? Oh, yes. Yes, that is almost the only assertion that our world around us wants to make. And you can hear in that this desire, right? This desire for indifference. It goes along well with kind of the American mentality of live and let live, because after all, if everything is sort of up in the air for question, if there really is no such thing as solid, objective truth, then, yeah, just live as you want, and I'll live as I want, and we can let each other live either way. That spirit of indifference, that spirit of skepticism is not the Holy Spirit, That spirit of indifference and skepticism, though, is attractive, isn't it? It holds out this idea in front of us that this will be what makes life nice and easy and smooth. And who doesn't want nice and easy and smooth things? That spirit of indifference, that spirit of skepticism gets into the church, too. Let me tell you a story. Um, About a year ago, I made the biggest mistake of my life. I agreed to be a circuit visitor. Um, And if you know what that is, a circuit visitor is the pastor who goes around and helps other congregations when they don't have a pastor. Okay, so I sit in on a bunch of call committee meetings. And in a call committee meeting, you hear all kinds of ideas about what our church really needs. And the district, the Mid-South District, will give to a congregation a list of names. Here's all the men who you might consider calling. And along with those names comes something called a set form. It's called the self-evaluation tool, where pastors answer all kinds of questions about what they believe, what their convictions are, and about what they want to do. Now, you can imagine where this story is going, right? You know what call committees want, don't you? Call committees want, well, the perfect pastor. And you know what the perfect pastor is, don't you? You've heard this before, haven't you? The perfect pastor is 30 years old with 50 years of experience. The perfect pastor spends all of his time with the youth but loves to be with the elderly. The perfect pastor inspires congregations to do exactly what they've always done. Congregations kind of like indifference in pastors because because we're all a little bit afraid of changes. Nobody likes change. Even in the most progressive congregation in the world, which would be very different than ours, all congregations are hesitant to change. And if a pastor has convictions, well, he just might change things. So congregations will often tell me, well, I don't know, pastor. He seems to be making a lot of assertions on this self-evaluation tool. And I've always, it's always good for me to remind them, you actually want that. right? You actually want a pastor who believes something. You actually want a pastor who has some convictions, don't you? As much as we might be hesitant to make changes, we also know, we also know what it is to be drowned in the gray, bland, tasteless world where everything is the same. A world where everything is gray, where everything is tasteless, where there are no convictions, that's a hellish kind of a world. And so, congregations and pastors too, it happens to pastors as well. Pastors sometimes want to have their own way so much that they think the perfect congregation would be the one that just goes along with whatever I say. But pastors don't want congregations who just go along with whatever. Pastors don't want indifferent congregations who just say, well, who cares? Whatever you want, Pastor. No, we want congregations that are convicted of the truth. This is what Jesus sends his spirit to do, to convict men and women of the truth so that we do not pass through this world as kind of a bland, colorless, flavorless congregation. That's tempting, though, isn't it? It's tempting to just kind of let everyone decide what the church is or what the church should be, because as soon as you make an assertion, as soon as you say, this is who we are, this is what we believe, this is what we do, well... Now, not everyone can agree with that. See, that go-along-to-get-along mentality creeps into the church, too. And just as it creeps into the church, it creeps into our homes. It often is the source of a lot of trouble in marriages, isn't it? Wives want their husbands to do what they say, right? But they don't want indifferent husbands. They want husbands who will say, yes, dear, yes, dear, whatever you want, dear. But at the same time, they want a husband who will actually do what God says. To love his wife and lead her. And so there's this friction, there's this tension. I want him to do what I say, but I also want him to take the lead. Indifference brings up all kinds of confusion. An indifferent husband, a husband who just kind of sits back and nods his head, okay honey, whatever, 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 can have the image, right, of going along and getting along. But if you scratch the surface, you find that there's not a lot of happiness there. There's not a lot of joy. There's not a lot of peace. There's just a lot of indifference. And indifference is kind of pathetic, isn't it? It is flavorless. It is bland. It is all gray and no color. And in our homes, we want color. Now, don't get me wrong, we don't want husbands who are just shouting about everything, right? We don't want men in our congregation and in our homes who are angry all the time. Be slow to anger, our epistle says. But we also want people who are convicted. We need conviction. Otherwise, we will just blend in with everyone and everything else. And as it goes in congregations and as it goes in our homes, so it goes in the world around us. And you can see, right, you can see what it looks like to live in a world where there are no convictions. You can see how confused our world is about very basic and fundamental things. What is a woman? What is a man? What does it mean to be married? Without conviction, we drown ourselves in blandness. And the devil loves bland things but not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit wants you to have color. The Holy Spirit wants you to have seasoning. The Holy Spirit wants you to have conviction. That's why Jesus sends him, to save us from the malaise, to save us from apathy, to save us from becoming completely indifferent, from just going along and getting along. This is the work that Jesus describes in our Gospel reading so vividly today. To save us from the bland, to save us from the tasteless, to save us from the gray, Jesus sends the spirit of conviction. It is to your advantage, Jesus told his disciples, that I go away. And we think, well, Jesus, that doesn't make any sense, right? I could understand why it might be to my advantage that my enemy goes away. I can understand maybe even why it might be to my advantage that my boss goes away. I can understand why sometimes even it's to my advantage that my friend goes away, but not my Jesus. And yet Jesus insists, I must go away. And here's the wonderful paradox that what Jesus says about going away doesn't mean that he is leaving us behind. No, it means he is going up. He must go up to his Father so that he can pour out on us his Holy Spirit. That's the advantage. If I do not go away, then the helper will not come. But if I go away, if I go up to the right hand of the Father, I will not leave you as orphans, Jesus told his disciples. I will send my Spirit And listen again to the work of the Holy Spirit. Jesus says that the Holy Spirit will convict, that the Holy Spirit will declare, that the Holy Spirit will announce. That doesn't sound like skeptical things, does it? Luther had it right. The Holy Spirit is no skeptic. The Holy Spirit is a convictor. The Holy Spirit is a declarer. The Holy Spirit is an announcer. And thank God that we have such conviction Thank God that we have such announcement. Thank God that we have such declaration. Because if we didn't, if we didn't, if we just went along to get along, well, we would drown ourselves in the world around us. No, it is to your advantage to be convicted. Now, Jesus lists out three things that the Holy Spirit convicts us of, right? It's not simply that the Holy Spirit convicts you that orange is better than blue, that UK is better than Louisville, that, you know, pastor's opinions are all correct. That's not the work of the Holy Spirit. It's possible that I'm wrong about which sports team you should cheer for. In the end, it doesn't really matter all that much. But the work of the Holy Spirit is to convict you about those things that are most essential, those things that are most true, those things that are most solid, or as our prayer today said it, those things where true joy is found. So listen again to the the three convictions that Jesus says the Holy Spirit will bring. He says that the Spirit will convict the world concerning sin. Now, our world does not want to be convicted of sin does it? Our world doesn't want to be convicted of sin any more than I want to be convicted of sin. No one likes to be told that they're wrong. No one likes to be told that they're off base. No one likes to be told that they're way out of bounds. And yet that is what Jesus says the helper will do. How strange and how wonderful that Jesus gives this title, the helper, to the Holy Spirit precisely when he is describing this work, conviction, We need help with conviction, and we need help with conviction in our day and age more than ever. Because you all know this, right? That the only thing that our world is convicted of is that there is no such thing as truth. And so Jesus sends you the Spirit. He makes you his Christians to be little outposts of conviction, to be little places of truth, to be little islands and little beacons, of shining in this dark and gray and tasteless bland world. And what that means is that you know the truth about sin. Now, Jesus puts it this way. He says that the Holy Spirit will convict you concerning sin because the world has not believed in me. That somehow sin is tied up with unbelief in Jesus. And there's a way to misunderstand this, right? Which goes like this. The only thing that matters is just believing in Jesus, right? So long as I say that I believe in Jesus, there's no other sins. Jesus said, the only sin that the Spirit will convict us of is not believing in Jesus. So, if I believe in him, I can do whatever I want. But Jesus doesn't single out this unbelief in him to exclude all other sins. Scripture is full of God's law, which works as that true mirror, which shows us the truth about what sin is. Jesus's point, though, is this. If we have gone wrong on this point, unbelief in Jesus, then we will be drowned in sin. But if we go right on this point, belief in Jesus, then all those other sins will be removed from us. To not believe in Jesus means to be dead in trespass and sins. And there is no limit. I could spend all afternoon listing out all of the sins. Only let your mind wander for a little bit. Only read through the newspaper. Only open your eyes when you go out. Only consider your own life, and you will see the bottomless pit that is the sinful world. But Jesus' point is this. That here is where sin is removed, by faith in Jesus. Where there is faith in Jesus, sin is not charged against you. Where there is faith, true faith, living faith in Jesus, there sin does not heap up and pile over you. Where there is faith in Jesus, where there is faith in Jesus, sin does not define you, but rather his word of grace, his word of truth, his word of life. That's why the Spirit convicts us concerning sin and unbelief in Jesus, because it is on that point that sin loses its power. It is on that point that sin is undone. It is on that point that guilt and shame and the fear that goes along with it is taken from you. Jesus says, though, that the Spirit is not only concerned with conviction about sin. Jesus says that the Spirit also will convict the world concerning righteousness Now, that word righteousness is kind of a legal word, and so I want to illustrate it for you this morning. I want you to think of a courtroom. In a courtroom, the righteous verdict is what the judge will pass. The righteous verdict is the verdict, this is right. This man is innocent. This man is not guilty, as we would hear it in our courts. And our world wants to be declared righteous, Even people who want to have nothing to do with God will go on and on about being on the right side of history. Even people who want to hear nothing of what the Holy Spirit says want to be justified, right? They want to be declared righteous in someone's eyes, somewhere, somehow, Jesus says if you want to have the real righteousness, if you want to have the real verdict, if you want to have the real sentence spoken over you, then you must find it in him. I go to the Father, Jesus says. His whole ministry, he sums up this way as going to the Father. I go to the Father to fulfill all righteousness. I go to the Father so that you may share in my righteousness. I die for your sins. I rise for your justification so that in me and in me alone, you may find, you may find this wonderful sentence of justification. Think about how important that is in our world. Think about what lengths people will go to to prove that they are right, that they are on the right side. Think about what dreadful paths our world has gone down looking for some other justification than being justified by God. You will not find peace in that path. You will not find peace and a verdict of righteousness, a verdict of justice apart from Jesus. But in Jesus... In Jesus, there is peace for your conscience. In Jesus, there is rest for your soul. Because when you have that righteousness that is credited to you for Jesus' sake, then you do not have to strive to impress the world. You do not have to strive to find your own righteousness because you have that which belongs to Jesus. And that will never be taken away from you. No matter who is on the Supreme Court, no matter who's writing the headlines for the newspaper, no matter who else is watching your life, if you have God's justice, if you have God's righteousness, then who can condemn you? Jesus says that the third thing that the Spirit will convict you of is judgment. And that causes us to shake a little bit in our boots, doesn't it? But the judgment that the Holy Spirit convicts us of is the judgment on Satan. Isn't that what Jesus said? He will convict convict the world concerning judgment because the prince of this world is judged. See, here is the mystery of the cross. That Jesus, who was condemned on the cross, that Jesus, who was declared innocent by Pilate, but still sentenced to death by him, that actually in his cross, it is death that is destroyed. That in his cross, God is passing a sentence on the devil's accusations. That in the cross of Jesus and through his blood, there is an answer for all of the accusations that the devil wants to throw against you. And that answer is that those sins have been removed. Those sins have been lifted from you. Those sins have been taken off of you. And so instead of suffering under the load of sin, you have this this wonderful verdict that you are forgiven, that you are forgiven. And if you are forgiven, then you have nothing to fear. If you are forgiven and the love of God abides on you, then you have nothing to fear from hell. You have nothing to fear even from death. For what can death do against the love of God? This is what the Spirit convicts us of. And he saves us right from being bland and tasteless and gray. The Holy Spirit wants little congregations that are convicted. The Holy Spirit wants pastors who are convicted and who speak clearly about these things. Because if he can silence us on this point, if he can drown out that conviction with all kinds of other noise, then the whole world will never hear a message of conviction. So we must delight in convictions dear friends. We must delight that we actually have a God who says the truth matters, that we have a Lord who says, I'm not just going to leave them tasteless and bland. I will send my spirit who will convict them. I will send my spirit who will show them the truth. I will send my spirit who will declare to them, who will apply to them all that my son Jesus has done for them. Delight in the assertions of the spirit, dear friends. Now, I should caution you, if you start to delight in assertions, you might start making assertions. And once you start making assertions, people will get a little bit nervous around you. People will start asking you, do you really believe it? Do you really think that it's true? Are you really convinced that Jesus died for your sins, that Jesus is risen from the dead, that Jesus is king? And you want people to ask that question. You want them to ask you about the hope that you have, don't you? You want them to ask you how you can be so convicted in a world that knows nothing of conviction. Delight in assertions. Delight in convictions. Be slow to anger, certainly. Be quick to listen. Let your convictions be tempered with love, of course. But never give up your convictions, just like you would never give up the salt that you put on your food. For the convictions that the Holy Spirit brings are like that salt. The convictions that the Holy Spirit brings are like that salt which brings out all the goodness and all the flavors of the food that we put on us. So let the Spirit salt you with his truth. Let the Spirit season you with his conviction so that you also may delight in his assertions. To God be the glory now and always. Amen.